I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. That was a good scared noise. Yeah, it's uh, it's warranted today. <laughs> How things been? Well, let's just say that uh, I started my new anti-anxiety medication about 30 minutes before we started this. If you're happy, you know it. Shake your meds. and uh, <laughs> It's turning the internal static down to a nice, handleable level. Handleable. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really important. You know, sometimes when you have medicine, then all of a sudden you're like, God, this is so much better. And you realize, oh, this is how normal people feel. Like you're not at 10 out of 10 all the time. You know, it's, <laughs> it's like, like w- welcome to two out of 10. Dear body and brain. You are not in immediate danger. You're just not happy. Can we just find happy? <laughs> oh, there it is. Just, <laughs> you know, tune that heart rate down and stop, like, getting ready to immediately face your death because it's not really a thing. You just Ugh. think it is. Yeah. Well, I am, um, you know, I'm working as a relief veterinarian now. Uh, it's been almost a year that I've owned my own relief business. Wow. Yeah. I mean, time, time flies. Has gone by fast. Yeah. So um, this month, obviously, because of COVID nineteen, uh, in you know, we should say that we're not recording with one another. We're recording remotely right now, uh, of course. But um, obviously, as veterinary uh, staff, like most veterinary staff, is still working right now, and so. I uh, have been managing this by not going to a lot of different clinics because I don't want to spread something around to tons of people if I get sick, you know. So I've been working with just a um, a short list of clinics that are, you know, practicing what I consider to be very good biosecurity right now. I feel comfortable there. But anyway, this Which, past month, you know. You've had a large part in implementing, so kudos to you for that. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> so I'm on the COVID-19 safety task, task force, force yes. for one of the clinics that I work with a lot, which is interesting and exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, uh, this past month, I had a couple of things planned that obviously got canceled. I had a big trip to New York with my mom and I had a powerlifting competition. But because I had those things, I had two full weeks planned off and then I just didn't fill them with dates. And so I had two full weeks out of the past month at home just doing Lauren stuff around the house, gardening, cleaning, you know, organizing. FaceTiming JJ while you're moving dirt bags. Pokemon Go, you know. <laughs> anyway, after uh, after the two weeks, I went back um, and I did a relief day and the office manager, who is a very close friend, okay, she she looked at me and I hadn't been there 30 seconds. I had just, you know, checked in with everybody for the day. And she said, did you take a Xanax before you came in here? And I was like, no. And she said, you, you seem calm. And I'm like, right? Like what? This is what having time off and doing the things that you enjoy does for you as a person. Mm. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Good time. if you need medicine, you should definitely take it. But also if gardening works, right. Dirty. I mean, if <laughs> if there are other things work like you need to do that and don't feel guilty about it. Anyway, JJ, yes. we are going to present a case today, as always. All of the cases that we talk about are presented anonymously. We don't provide any identifying information for the vet, the staff member that submitted the information, or the owner of the pet. And we change the name of the pets to protect the innocent. (laughs) They're not always innocent. (laughs) So, our case is a sweet little chonky kitty. He's 10 years old and castrated indoor only in a domestic short hair. The appointment for the day had said that he had lost weight in the past week and drinking more water for a while, which as we all know, is going to be, let's see, start taking your bets. Who do, what do you think it is? Yes. Veterinary roulette, as I like to call mm-hmm. it, you know, where you, the staff gathers around the schedule for the day and you see this cat weight loss, drinking more water, and you start placing bets on what feline disease it's going to be. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite games. You're also going to be like, who scheduled this at four o'clock in the afternoon? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if the pet is sick, obviously we want to see the pet, but this isn't a great 4 p.m. on a Friday appointment because 
depending on what we end up diagnosing, this is going to be most likely some type of really, really long consultation Mm -hmm. and not like a a quick thing. So in a perfect world, we would get that kitty on in in the morning. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. So what kind of things do you think people will be placing bets on? I'd be uh, uh, betting on uh, possibly either uh, the diabetes or mm, maybe yep. kidney disease. Mm-hmm. Throw a wild card hyperthyroidism in there, too. Uh, mm-hmm. And then also mm-hmm. some types of neoplasia or cancer can create these types of symptoms. And when I'm thinking about a kitty cat with weight loss, really just any cat with weight loss, period, regardless of the other symptoms, that that's kind of my big four. Hyperthyroidism, diabetes, renal disease, and then we'll call it an umbrella of metabolic disease, um, mm-hmm. of which cancer is one. Okay. Because there's so many. If we were playing veterinary roulette, though, I would for sure, most days I would pick diabetes, but if I was feeling squirrely and like there was a high, like the, if we were actually betting and the the chances of hitting were like higher for hyperthyroidism. I'd throw a card on hyperthyroidism just to see. Mm-hmm. P.S. You shouldn't yeah. gamble. It's illegal. Go ahead. <laughs> At least in this state. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in Alabama, it's illegal. Which at some point we probably should talk a little bit about the fact that we are in Alabama because that probably changes a lot of things mm-hmm. for the listeners. But and another time, another day. Right. I agree. Anywho, so a couple more details. Um, cat had a good appetite uh, for the owner and uh, the owner wasn't really sure if it was urinating more or not, but he has urinated outside of the litter box a few times. Hmm. Okay. So physical exam. Uh, the kitty cat weighed 10 pounds on the day of the visit compared to 13 pounds at the last visit, which was two years ago. Hmm. So when you looked at the physical cat, um, weight loss was definitely noted. Yeah, I was just going to say that I think it's funny that I mean, not funny, you know, I think it's ironic that the last visit was two years ago, but that's what we (laughs) see most of the time, right? Like, yeah, especially cats over dogs. Yeah. For some reason, cats don't seem to make it into the clinic as often as dogs do. And indoor only cats, Mm -hmm. um, people kind of just... I don't know. Plus, a year of time goes by quickly, as we were saying. Yeah, it does. I was just thinking the other day, I was looking to see how old my cat was, and I'm just thinking, she's probably eight or nine. No, she's 12. 12. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> Wait a minute. Oh, my god. When gosh. did 12 years go by? I mean, it seemed like it was just yesterday that I was bottle feeding her, but yeah, she's 12. Time, time flies. And I'm time old. does fly. Okay, sorry. Proceed. All good. Anywho... So I guess another thing when it comes to weight loss with kitty cats or really any animal that you have at home, if they're experiencing changes uh, over time, it won't necessarily be noticeable. Yeah. Just because, you know, you see them every day. So unless it's something drastic or happens really fast, you may not notice it. But that's where it's important to get frequent weights in. Sometimes the owner will have a specific idea of the timeline when they notice the weight loss, but... I don't think that we can always say that that's accurate. Um, the weight loss has usually been going on longer than the owner thinks, just because it's tough to notice small changes. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. I'll usually notice till it's pretty bad. Yeah. Or maybe, say, for instance, if they notice the cat was urinated outside the box, they might be thinking, mm, is there something else going on? Mm-hmm. And they may pay more close attention. They're like, oh, you know, I don't remember feeling... Being able to feel like the backbone and the hips like I can. Maybe mm-hmm. we've lost some weight. Maybe I should schedule that appointment. So what else were we seeing on physical exam on this one? Uh, we had grade two dental calculus, which is moderate dental tartar. Okay. All the other physical examination um, findings were normal. Okay. Uh, the cat was offered treats in the exam room, which he ate without hesitation. Ooh, so then we believe the owner when the appetite, you know, on the appetite mm-hmm. question. Stress in the exam room. Did not bother. So I'll be honest with you. The fact that um, we're giving a cat treats in the exam room and he's mowing them down. Then I'm like, oh, girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I start to I start to really get on the diabetes, hyperthyroidism side mm-hmm. of the uh, of the guessing, you know. <laughs> yeah, that would uh, that would strike my renal theory and and replace it with hyperthyroidism. I mean, not always. Right. Like, we never right. want to make a diagnosis based on treat eating, but, you know, like... That's just that mystery solving. That's right. That's the art of veterinary medicine. Uh-huh. The fun, fun, <laughs> can, can be fun part. I, I wouldn't, though, make any changes to the differential list we established during veterinary roulette. 
Now, Mm -hmm. it is always important to examine the patient. It just happens in this case, our exam didn't really change any of the things we were starting to suspect. But obviously, Mm -hmm. there are many cases when the exam might turn what you expect completely on its head, right? Mm -hmm. So we need to choose some lab work to help rule in and rule out some of our differentials. So Mm -hmm. diabetes, what test is going to help us rule that out? Chemistry test as well as urinalysis. Perfect. So So, we add that on the list, right? mm -hmm. And then we need to rule out hyperthyroidism. So we'll check a T4. Mm -hmm. A total T4. And then generally renal disease, that's going to be our chemistry panel. And then our kind of umbrella metabolic disease slash neoplasia. Maybe throw a CBC on there too. So a minimum database plus a total T4 for this cat to Mm -hmm. decide uh, where we need to go with our differentials. Mm -hmm. Which was done. Okay. Um, We had an elevated white count with no immature neutrophils. Okay, so no left shift. We did have hyperglycemia. Ooh. Glucose level was uh, 575. Oh, boy. Per deciliter. So normal blood sugar in a kitty is around 80 to 120 Mm -hmm. um, milligrams per deciliter. But we have to worry or we have to consider was this a possible um, stress induced hyperglycemia. Okay. Which, considering it was that high, mm, yeah, I would think not. Yeah. The, this cat is going to have diabetes. Um, mm. We're going to go through the rest of the things too, but like you see that chemistry pop up. A lot of times I will <laughs> stand by the machine and wait, you know, as they populate, mm-hmm. it'll show you on a lot of machines um, while it's populating. Like we have a blood sugar result, but we don't have the rest yet. Mm-hmm. That usually is one of the first things that comes up. And so it's like, boom, 575. I'm already like, pay up, bitches, uh-huh. you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, OK. But yeah. so there are other reasons that we can see in elevated blood sugar. We have to pay attention to things like the clinical signs. Right. So number one, if we've got a super high blood sugar like in this kitty, this kitty cat's blood sugar, you said was 575 migs per deciliter. Mm-hmm. That cat's going to be diabetic, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, pretty high. But kitty cats do get stress hyperglycemia. This is usually kind of sub 300 milligrams per deciliter, although, you know, you see very occasional cases where it might be a bit higher than that. I don't. I have never heard of a stress hyperglycemia in the 500s. So what happens is that, um, you know, in kitty cats, we can just get this kind of moderate hyperglycemia. This is going to be in cats that do not have clinical signs of diabetes mellitus. Okay, so if you see a cat and it's in here and its blood sugar is 250 and it's not losing weight, it's not PUPD, it doesn't have, you know, sugar ketones in the urine which we'll get to in a minute, like that cat's not diabetic. Do not start that cat on insulin. Um, Please no. Yeah. If it's a mild or moderate hyperglycemia, you need to tiptoe before you go putting something on on insulin. I've unfortunately um, dealt with some second opinions and emergency cases where kitty cats were started on insulin um, when, you know, with mild elevation, like a 285 blood sugar, with a diagnosis of diabetes and and that was wrong. So mm-hmm. do, just don't don't be giving insulin to a cat with a 285 blood sugar. We need to do more investigation. Mm-hmm. Don't pay. Yeah. So the other thing and um that I've seen and this will cause profound glucose elevations uh is the hyperglycemia of impending death. Okay. So you get these really crazy big numbers like in a diabetic but the patient's not diabetic. And this is usually in a patient that's crashing or right about to crash and they're presented on emergency. Uh, and this happens due to the massive circulation of catecholamines because the body is just like, we are throwing everything out there to try to keep us alive. Just um, launching that Hail Mary and hoping. Exactly. And then the last thing, it can be associated with anaphylaxis. Now, I was not able to find any specific studies about this, but multiple anecdotal descriptions of um, a hyperglycemia in a patient that presented with anaphylaxis type symptoms and multiple emergency critical care specialists and internists commenting that they have seen this before. Um, But again, I was not able to find a hard and fast like study. And that might be a really difficult thing to study. 
Yeah, it makes sense, though. I mean, if you're in anaphylaxis, your stress is pretty high. So. Right. And you probably have the adrenal glands going, oh, crap, like in the hyperglycemia of impending death. Mm-hmm. So we might even say that those kind of overlap a little. But mm-hmm. it was enough. It was mentioned enough when I was doing my review of um literature and message board posts that i wanted to put it in as a separate bullet like just in case yeah so makes sense okay so besides the blood sugar was anything else unusual um all the other chemistry values were normal okay t4 was normal so we can rule out the hyperthyroidism cool uh there was no ketonuria or ketones in the urine okay i'm assuming there was glucose in the urine Yes, yes, there was. But no ketones. That's excellent news. That means we're looking at an uncomplicated case. <laughs> yes, we're, we're not ketoacidotic yeah. quite yet. The urine-specific gravity was 1035. Okay. I have always kind of, not always, but I've kind of been led to believe that typically if um, you have a diabetic patient that their specific gravity will be low. Mm. Yeah, and so m- most of the time diabetics will actually have normal urine concentration and uh if they did had a have a low urine concentration i would be thinking we need to they're drinking too much water maybe well okay <laughs> i don't know i'm just so, thinking uh, my I, i'm gonna try to keep this brief and do an off the top of the head uh sort of description and if we need to fill in things in later episodes, we, we can. But yes. I don't want to get on too much of a tangent here because we've got so much to cover just for an uncomplicated diabetic cat. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, diabetes, having diabetes doesn't impair the, the urine concentration ability of the kidneys. You're, you're going to have a normal urine concentration most of the time. Or at least it's not going to be isosthenuric or hyposthenuric. Again, not trying to go on a tangent, but in a kitty cat, anywhere from about 10, 20 and up is considered, quote, normal. But most cats hover in the 1040 and up range just day to day. Right. Mm-hmm. So you could say like 1035 is maybe just a smidge low for a cat, but it's not pathologically low. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Cool. And. If the cat did have a very low urine concentration, say it was 1015, then I'm like, uh oh, something else is going on. And that other thing I would be worried about would be a urinary tract infection creating a a low urine concentration. So we would want to look at the sediment and make sure um, since the kidney values were normal. Okay. Okay. Sidebar over. (laughs) In this particular patient, the sediment was normal. Okay. Great. Good news there. Okay. So, I mean, we can diagnose this cat with diabetes based on this information. Okay. And the information that we're looking at there is clinical signs and laboratory findings. So anytime you're looking at diagnosing diabetes mellitus or sugar diabetes in a kitty cat, we need to look and say, does the presentation make sense? And in this case, it does. The cat has had all the classic symptoms. He's losing weight. He's drinking more water. He's probably urinating more, and that's why he's going outside of the litter box, because he's flooding it, and then he's like, I don't want to go in here, okay? Um, And he's got hyperglycemia and glucosuria, okay? So this is a diabetic cat. Today, we are going to confine our comments to diabetic cats only. You treat diabetes differently in different species. That's very important. So what we're going to talk about today is potentially specific to just cats some aspects of the management of feline diabetes don't apply to dogs or people for that matter um so again we're just covering kitties if the cat has a blood sugar of 575 that cat is diabetic yes (laughs) it is (laughs) i mean and it's not like laying limp on the table dead right (laughs) so like if you're it's eating snacks off the table correct this cat is diabetic i can tell you a hundred percent it doesn't have hyperglycemia of impending death because it's sitting (laughs) in the exam room eating and those patients do not have that so okay no (laughs) yeah okay so jj i think we need to go through the clinical signs of diabetes um even the ones that aren't present in this case so polyuria that's going to be increased urine production might lead to inappropriate elimination outside of the litter box sometimes Mm -hmm. polydipsia drinking more water 
weight loss, a normal to increased appetite usually. Mm-hmm. The one exception would be cats that are very sick from their diabetes and are now in DKA and aren't eating. Yeah, that's a whole new level of mm. yeah. panic. <laughs> Bad. Bad juju. <laughs> and then the last one um, is a diabetic neuropathy. So just like in people that get tingling, loss of sensation um, in their uh, extremities from being diabetic, kitty cats can develop this too. And the classic symptom is a plantigrade stance in cats. So that means that their little hocks will be on the floor. Instead of walking up on their tiptoes, their whole foot and ankle are kind of sitting on the ground. Um, and they'll actually, when it gets really bad, they'll walk around like that. Is that sometimes called a uh, drop hawk? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a dropped, in my brain. yeah, a dropped hawk appearance. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that more large animal or just um, more no, I mean, I would. I would say I would say it's used interchangeably with a plantigrade stance. Plantigrade yeah. stance sounds more fancy. That's uh, that's the textbook term, plantigrade stance. Redneck veterinary term. Drop, but if pop, you, drop, yeah, pop. I mean, if you if you ask a client, does your cat have a plantigrade stance? They're gonna stare <laughs> at you like you're an alien. So <laughs> my cat's been in a plant. What? Say this owner had come in and said. Hey, I think my cat has diabetes. I want you to check for that first. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's fair, right? Mm-hmm. Say we went ahead and we just spot checked a blood sugar, 575. Boom. We feel pretty confident that that cat has diabetes, okay? It might be tempting to go ahead, use a spot check blood sugar in your analysis to diagnose diabetes. And, and that's not medically wrong, okay? That... That could work, especially if we're limited with finances, okay? But you could be missing something important. You could be missing something, okay? So it's very important to perform complete diagnostic testing when you can because cats can have more than one problem concurrently. So diabetes and hyperthyroidism. They enjoy having one the more, more than one thing. Don't they? Cats like to just collect diseases. JJ and I went to the American Association of Feline Practitioners. Well, we went to that conference. One of the presenters who was just amazing, and I wish I remembered what her name is, she said over and over in all the talks, cats are collectors of disease. And I was just like, that is the most, yes, like you you have it. Like you are right. Cats do collect diseases. They're, they're like the uh, the cute little creature on uh, Harry Potter. Not the Harry Potter, but the magical beast that likes to collect coins in its little pocket. Oh, a Niffler? Yes. They are the Niffler of diseases. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so um, diabetes and pancreatitis slash GI disease, mm, or all three together, your trifecta case, diabetes, hyperthyroidism, and pancreatitis all at one time. (laughs) So yeah, so um, it's important to know uh, that cats can have more than one problem going on that are contributing to these symptoms, and it's best to get a complete picture and offer that to the owner. If the owner then declines that, then you need to note it in the medical record, but you should be offering it. And then uh, then there's a big question, you know, should a urine culture be performed in all cats with a diabetes mellitus diagnosis? And the reason is that urinary tract infection is common in diabetic cats, and it can be a complicating factor in getting the diabetes under control, like we're going to discuss later about 13% of cats diagnosed with diabetes mellitus um, had a concurrent urinary tract infection in one study. And that information is from the textbook of Veterinary Internal Medicine, 7th edition. (laughs) So we're going to dive into the pathophysiology of diabetes uh, just a little bit. So diabetes mellitus is defined as a complete or relative deficiency of the hormone insulin. Insulin is produced by the beta cells of the pancreas. And in humans, it's divided into two types. So that's kind of how we discuss diabetes in pets. And I think it's mostly because that's what owners are most familiar with. The type 1 diabetes in people is also called insulin-dependent diabetes. And this is due to an autoimmune disease that destroys the beta cells in the pancreas. This is rare in cats, but common in dogs. Type 2 diabetes in people 
is also called non-insulin-dependent diabetes. And this occurs from a relative deficiency of insulin. So you might even have technically enough insulin, but your body has insulin resistance and the beta cells are dysfunctioning. This is common in cats. About 80% of all feline diabetic cases are considered to be type 2. And there are some predisposing factors that we'll go through here. The first one is obesity. Obese cats. mm -hmm. Yeah, obese cats are four times as likely to develop diabetes mellitus compared to normal weight cats. But I do just want to point out that obese cats are not bad cats and their people are not bad people. In fact, I own chunky cats and I belong to a secret Facebook group dedicated to chunky cats, okay? Where the top rule is like no chunk shaming. Because people see bigger (laughs) cats and then, I don't know, people who are weird internet crusaders and don't have enough to do with their lives or something will get on and harass owners of chunky cats on the internet. Like, no. I mean, there's chunky and then there's a lot coming. You know, if they can't walk, there's a problem. Exactly. So then the other thing I'll say, and we'll just kind of put in a sidebar here is... As someone, a person who's always struggled with my weight, sometimes having a weight discussion about pets with clients is uncomfortable because some clients will read it as an assault on how good of an owner they are. So we want to be aware that people, and I could tell you all about it, people have a lot of emotional feelings about weight. Here's the good news. Cats do not. They don't. They don't have fashion (laughs) magazines. They don't have societal standards that they have to live up to. They DGAF. Okay. So mm-hmm. they roll over on their backs and flaunt that belly. Exactly. So um, <laughs> cats don't have an emotional reaction to this information. Additionally, because they don't have the same types of societal and social baggage around food that a lot of us people do, it's a lot easier to ask of them to go on a diet. Occasionally, I've seen people that are on the opposite side of the spectrum and kind of way overdo it on the weight loss. So like, also, these cats are not runway models. Okay, so (laughs) so let's like, if we can find a happy medium here here okay no Mm -hmm. one is trying to yell at you about how fat your cat is we just want it to be healthy and also let's not take it to the other extreme minimally chunky cats (laughs) are probably fine okay so another predisposing factor is steroid administration so any type of steroid um that is uh, systemic so oral steroids injectable steroids (laughs) can create diabetes in cats gee has that happened to someone you know yes Yes, it happened to my own cat. Poor baby. (laughs) I know. There is a little bit less risk with oral steroids simply because we can control the withdrawal process. If you give a long-acting steroid injection like (sighs) Depomedrol or something (laughs) like that to a cat, (laughs) you can't take that away again, okay? It's just there until it runs out. Please don't do that unless you have to. Okay. An oral tapering dose of steroid is much safer. Okay. Because we can withdraw it. So yeah, it happened to my own cat who was on oral prednisolone for GI disease and she became diabetic. <laughs> the most, uh, most of the time I've seen cats with diabetes brought on by steroids that they've had depot. What about you, JJ? Same or different? Yeah, I've, I've seen that happen. And Usually, uh, once you get them off the steroid, they may require a little bit of treatment, but most of the time they mm-hmm. go back into remission. And Yeah, although I've seen cats that don't. Yeah, uh, which is sad. Yeah, it's upsetting. If you're going to give steroids to a cat, please make it an oral steroid, if at all possible. Yes. If you can't, then just understand that th- there's risk, especially if that cat is already overweight. And male diabetes is way more common in male cats than in female cats. Uh, so if you've got a male obese cat, like, ooh, you, you know, um, that, that's a that's a potential issue. But know that it can still happen even with oral steroids. Like in my cat's case, we were able to recognize that she had diabetes. She was on insulin for a while because obviously if we're using steroid to treat GI disease like that, (laughs) that that has to continue. And we were able to eventually get her off of steroids short term and replace it with a dietary change. And she did really well. Uh, And she has not redeveloped diabetes Um, even though I now have to give her steroids a couple of times a week. 
but at that lower dose, she doesn't have a problem. Yes. Um, anyway, JJ, there are some disease processes that make diabetes more likely to develop in kitty cats. Um, well, there are a few. Mm-hmm. Acromegaly yep. is one. Um, Cushing's disease is another. And pancreatitis. So we're going to go into treatment. Um, and the goal of treatment for diabetic cats is going to be to achieve a diabetic remission. Since most kitty cats are non-insulin dependent diabetics, a remission is possible for them. And since uh, insulin is expensive and treatment is expensive, remission is a reasonable goal for every diabetic cat we see. It's not possible in every case, but it's something that we should strive for. So, but uh, we might um, we might see the remission be short lived. So what are we going to treat diabetic cats with? We're going to treat them with insulin. Yes. So oral hypoglycemic agents. This is going to be, quote, diabetes medicine that that people take orally, not recommended in cats. No. That could be its whole own episode. So we're not going to go in anything beyond just it's not recommended. <laughs> yes. <laughs> They're not good at all. Yeah. There are a few types of insulin that we use in cats. And again, we're just going to hit the high points here. And there are two types of insulin that are considered the go-tos for kitty cats. Those would be Glargine or Lantus is a brand name mm-hmm. or Prozinc. Yeah. So Glargine is a long-acting insulin analog. It is a human uh, product. It is expensive. And for a while, like I'm going to say circa 2008, <laughs> it was um, at least by some considered to be the best option to achieve remission in cats. But studies have since shown that pro-zinc or protamine zinc insulin is also a good choice. So protamine zinc insulin, pro-zinc is a brand name of that. Another brand name was PZI, but that's not available and has been off the market for quite a while. Um mm-hmm. It's less expensive than Glargine. It's not cheap, but it's less expensive than Glargine. And it's the other one of the two good first choice options for kitty cats. This is a veterinary product. Now, there is one type of insulin that is labeled for kitty cats, but that is not recommended to treat cats for diabetes. And JJ, what type of insulin is that? That would be Vetsulin. Yeah. So porcine zinc lente insulin and so common names are Vetsulin or cane insulin is not recommended for feline diabetics. Now, I know that it's labeled in cats, but it's a problem because there's a short duration of action for this insulin in cats and it poorly controls their clinical signs. So there are better choices. And this is not me just uh, standing out here on a hill by myself saying this. Many internists have been telling us this for a long time. And it's actually published in the um, AHA, which is American Animal Hospital Association, Diabetes Management Panels, Recommendations for Treating Diabetics. And we're going to get some more information about that later. Now, insulins come in different concentration and syringes. Yes. uh, Typically, um, with pets, you have the U40 versus U100. So U40 just means there's 40 units per ml. Mm -hmm. U100 there's 100 units per ml. And if you use the wrong type of syringe, we're going to get an overdose or underdose depending on which way you mix them up. But um, you always need to make sure that you're using a U40 insulin with the right type of syringe and a U100 insulin with the right type of syringe. And something that I found in some research was that um, because veterinary uh, products are different, um, not all human pharmacists are familiar so they may say it doesn't matter which syringe you use. There's been cases of that happening. So make sure, and it'll say on your bottle of insulin, whether it's U40 or U100, mm-hmm. just make sure you have the appropriate syringe because it it makes a big difference. It does. Um, one unit of insulin is definitely a different volume depending on the type of syringe used. Yeah. So the thing that I do, um, and of course I have uh, anxiety, right? <laughs> and then perfectionism. Yep. But um, one thing that I do as a safety check is I have a habit (laughs) of if I'm about to give insulin, I hold the bottle in my hand, I hold the syringe in my hand, and I literally match them. Bottle, U40, syringe, U40. Even if I know what type of insulin, I've done it a thousand times, blah, blah, blah. Clinical practice is busy. And gosh, if you're working at the ER, it's busy, okay? And so I sit there and I'm like, everybody be quiet. U40. U40, go, (laughs) you know, 
um <laughs> because well because it, I've done that it's too. a high stakes um thing it if is. you mess it up much better to take a few seconds to double check than to have to come and be like um doctor i figured out that i overdosed this pay you know so that i'm not like mm-hmm. you did what in the middle of cpr or something like that on another patient so anyway right. um mm-hmm. in managing our diabetic cases we have to often teach owners about insulin administration uh and you generally would handle that for me <laughs> As a technician, I usually have my technicians go over teaching insulin administration while I'm getting the discharges and everything prepared and things like that. So Mm -hmm. um, do you have a favorite conversation? (laughs) Yeah. Do you have a favorite technique? I typically kind of go over kind of the anatomy of the syringe Mm -hmm. and uh, just try to reassure them that, you know, most of the time, especially you give the kitty a little snack, uh, the needle is a short and B very small. Um, needles, the bigger the number, the smaller they are. And, uh, this is about a 28 to 30 gauge needle. It's pretty tiny. They don't typically even react. They don't even know you've done it. So that kind of helps because a lot of times owners are going to be, I have to give a shot to my cat. This is going to be terrible. I'm going to hurt them. They're going to be mad at me. I'm going to feel terrible. And I'm like, doesn't go any way like that. They won't even know it's happening. I usually have them practice doing the injections with some saline. Great idea. You know, just so they can get the feel of how to do it with someone there. Um, You know, I'll do it first, show them how it goes, and then have them do it until they're comfortable. There's always going to be some people that are, you know, I absolutely can't. I'm like, is there somebody in your house? Well, they can. Because, you know, there are people that are afraid of needles and just can't handle it. Yeah. No, no harm, no foul. I get it. You know, if I had to do certain things to people, I would probably not be excited about it either. So (laughs) (laughs) I don't do people. So uh, that's, um, yeah, no, no judgment here. Just just know that we got to get it done one way or the other. So good instructions that are written, but also going through it in the exam room and making sure they're comfortable for they leave. And it may take one or two repeat visits for getting used to it and getting over the fear of it. But most people do really well with it. Yeah. The other type of management besides insulin, which we should always start for our diabetic cats, is dietary management. So mm-hmm. feeding a low-carb diet is the absolute most important thing that you can do. And because canned food has way fewer carbohydrates than dry food, any type of canned food is okay. So in one study, they found that feeding a canned-only diet to newly diagnosed diabetic cats was the only significant factor that was associated with clinical remission. That's interesting. Yeah. In a perfect world, sure, that might be a prescription diet. But it's important to realize that over-the-counter canned diets are acceptable for diabetic cats, especially if we have financial limitations. And generally, any canned food will be a better choice than literally any dry food. Okay? Mm -hmm. Now, we don't want to be a food Nazi. Kitty cats sometimes don't like canned food. I don't understand them. My cats go insane over canned food. But some cats won't, won't eat it. And so for those cats, if we're going to have to use a dry diet, it needs to be prescription. So if we had to create kind of like a best to worst case scenario for feeding, the ideal would be a prescription canned only diet, acceptable over the counter canned diet, slightly less acceptable, but still okay. If cats refuse canned food would be a dry prescription diet, but an over the counter diet is a poor choice for these kitty cats. It's important to remember that feeding timed meals is much less important than in in dogs kitty cats you can free feed okay and a low carb food is the most important aspect of feeding way above things like timing and amount and things like that okay now if the owners have been long-term dry food feeders they are going to be surprised by the volume of canned food needed to keep this kitty cat going Okay. Mm -hmm. They also might have heard the news that their cats are overweight, have read on the internet, overweight creates diabetes, and now they're going to accidentally try to starve their cat to death while we're trying to treat it for its diabetes. (laughs) We need to warn them off of this. So Mm -hmm. don't accidentally underfeed diabetic cats. They need calories. So do a dietary calculation and make sure the owner knows 
XYZ amount of calories is the minimum calories for this cat. We have to be getting it into this cat every day. Okay, so another uh, aspect of the diabetes is going to be monitoring. There's a couple different ways that you can get blood cl- blood glucose levels. Yeah. The the most the, the most common one and the, the uh gold standard is going to be your blood glucose curve. Mm-hmm. The insulin should be given I was trying to look up the NADIR. Nader. I wasn't familiar with. So okay. you, you calculate your insulin based on the lowest point of the curve. Yeah. See doctor things versus tech things. <laughs> I do the curve. Okay. I don't know what you're doing. To, I mean Yeah, so um so I can comment on that. So you're absolutely right. Blood sugar curve is the gold standard for monitoring diabetic kitty cats, okay? The insulin dose should be made based on the nadir, which is the lowest point, okay? So we never want to spot check a kitty cat and have a dose adjustment based on that one check. That That is not acceptable unless that dose adjustment is oh, crap, the cat's hypoglycemic, let's go down. That that would be okay, potentially, okay. Mm-hmm. But but we never want to say the cat's blood sugar is 300, let's go up, okay? We need a curve. Um, so, okay. JJ, how is a blood sugar curve performed? So, typically, we'll check a blood glucose every two hours for a 12-hour period, um, hopefully beginning at the time of insulin administration. Yep. People's schedules and clinic hours of operation can be difficult when trying to do this, but you just have to do the best you can. Um, If the blood glucose level drops below 200, then you'll check it hourly until it rises above 200. Why might that be? Do you know? I don't. Okay. It's because of something called the Simoji effect. If you get too low, say your blood sugar goes low, 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 low. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then your liver is like, oh boy, let me throw my glycogen out here. Mm -hmm. Um, So the liver releases its glycogen and then that skyrockets your blood sugar, right? Mm -hmm. So what you'll see is if you just measure it every two hours and we're getting down, say we've been like 250, 230, 210, and now we're like 150. And then two hours after that, we're 700. You're like, what the hell happened? And and if you're not familiar with this phenomenon, then you might be tempted to increase the dose. But actually, that's a bad idea. Okay. <laughs> that makes a right? lot Right. That's sense. another reason you don't want to just do a spot check and increase the insulin based on that. What if you happen to check it uh, right as the Smoji effect occurred, right? So mm-hmm. that's why as the um, blood sugar is dipping under 200 and you're getting like 189, I- I'm going to want it checked every hour until it's back up above 200 because I want to know how low was the lowest point. That's going to be the basis of my decision for dosing. Home blood sugar curves are a thing. It's certainly not for every patient and it's certainly not for every owner. But mm-hmm. there's a few things that we want to make sure when we're doing a home blood sugar curve like the type of glucometer, for example. Yeah, it needs to be a veterinary-specific glucometer. That's what I recommend. Mm -hmm. You have to use the strips that are specific to it. Mm -hmm. Also, you want to make sure that you do a test run and compare it to in-house lab equipment, make sure the results are the same, or at least in line, Um, and, and definitely have the owner practice at the clinic. They need to kind of be aware of what's the best place to try to get your blood sample from. I find the ear being the easiest with kitties. They don't tend to mind. Which some clinics have never heard of. When I go there, I'm like, yeah, just get it from the ear. And people are usually like technicians. I found to be very resistant. Mm -hmm. But then they see me do it and they're like, that was easy. Yeah, man, what the hell? Like, why have I been doing a, you know, cephalic blood draw for this? Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's it it does make things a lot easier. And the kitties don't seem to mind. Mm -hmm. I mean, I find just using a really small needle works really well. People like to use the little lancets. I don't, they're not long enough for mm-hmm. me. I can't. I like a 25 gauge needle. Yeah, yeah, that's my favorite. That, and I find you put a little petroleum based something. If you have Vaseline at home on the ear, that'll make the hair lay down mm-hmm. and you can still hit the vein and it beads up on that petroleum base. So it doesn't absorb in the hair. So it makes a, it a, a lot easier to get your mm-hmm. sample and just hold a little, little bit of pressure afterwards. And most of the time, everything's fine. Yeah. So the timing of blood sugar curves is sometimes something that creates confusion, even among veterinarians. So this is very important. If your goal is to adjust the insulin dose, 
you need to wait at least seven to 10 days after the last insulin dose adjustment. That means if you change the dose today and you have the patient come back for tomorrow for a blood sugar curve, that is not useful for basing further dose changes. The only time when something like that would be helpful is if you fear a hypoglycemic episode. So if you say you started insulin and tomorrow you check a blood sugar curve, if it's still high, don't increase the insulin. Like, it's going to be high, okay? The only thing that that's useful for is to monitor for hypoglycemia, okay? Mm -hmm. um, so you need to wait that 7 to 10 day time frame after dose change. So there is mm -hmm. one other type that we kind of mentioned, and that's to spot check the blood sugar. And I actually think we've kind of summarized this pretty fully already. It has its place, but that place is not as the go-to method for monitoring your diabetic patients. Yeah, <laughs> no. Exactly. It can be helpful for... Uh, monitoring if you think they're going into remission, but really not much else. As far as overall testing, there's one more type of test that we all often see, and that's a fructosamine level. Now, this is something that gives us more information about what's been going on in the past couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. Similar to the A1C in humans. Yeah, yeah. And so it's useful for monitoring long-term stable diabetic cats. So this is a cat that's like doing fine, been on the same dose of insulin for like six months or longer, and is like doing great at home, not PUPD, you know, just, just hanging out. That's a great way to check. Now, you should not use a fructosamine level to adjust the dose of insulin. You should use the fructosamine level to determine whether the cat needs a blood sugar curve. Okay, so that's that's a common misconception. So fructosamine is a good screening test. Okay, so it, it can be used to screen for reasonable diabetic regulation in our kitty cats who are on long-term insulin therapy. Yeah, and I had a question for you about the that. Um, yeah. So if you have a cat that's very well regulated, mm -hmm. how often do you do a curve? Because in, in my research, it said like every two to four months. Yeah. But if they are, you know, say they've been diabetic for a year yeah. and they're trucking along doing great, we really hadn't had to adjust much at all. Would you recommend doing taking those curves further out and just doing a fructosamine every so often? I mean, what's yeah. your time frame on that? Oh, that's a great question, and I think it depends entirely on the individual patient, right? Okay. So this is mm -hmm. one of those times where we're going to have, hopefully, a medical director that's giving us some recommendations to base our decisions off of, but that kind of a thing would fall into the individual case scenario. So say I had a kitty cat. Say the cat from the example earlier got started on insulin, is symptom-free at home. That means we have stable weight, no increased thirst in urination. The owner reports the cat is doing very well. And I have had um, several blood sugar curves performed on that cat that demonstrate that the nadir is not too low. It's not too high. It's perfect. Then I'm going to transition that cat to fructosamine monitoring. And I'm going to do that every three to six months, depending on how the cat is feeling. Mm -hmm. okay. So now I'm going to talk with the owner about this, okay, because fructosamine level is not less expensive than a blood sugar curve. It just takes up less time, right? Mm -hmm. And owners tend to dislike dropping their cats off for a blood sugar curve at the hospital. Yes, it lasts all day. Yeah. So um, so it's it's not a benefit in cost wise. It's not a benefit. It doesn't tell us more or better information. It only is a convenience issue and a le maybe you could argue less stressful for the patient if the patient hates being at the clinic. Okay. So mm -hmm. I, I mean, I'd use it on a case by case basis. If I have a, you know, a, a chonky chonk that's like, hey, what's up? And doesn't care, you know, is just hanging out at the clinic like whatever, man. And we all see those cats, you know, mm -hmm. I'm going to probably curve that guy because he doesn't care. You know, mm -hmm. or I have the owner doing blood sugar curves at home and they're very competent. I'm going to curve that cat. I'm not even going to toss fructosamine out the window for those guys because a curve tells mm -hmm. me more info. But I've got that cat that seems to be doing really well. It gets profoundly stressed at the hospital. The owners can't manage a home blood sugar curve. Well, heck, let's do fructosamine level on that cat. And again, we're not going to look at that and say, oh, it looks like the blood sugar is running high. Let's go up on the insulin. No, no, no. We use that to say, gosh, we really need to do a curve. OK, we need to find out what that nadir is because the nadir is what we base dose changes off of. Cool. 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 One important point that I have here um, is that diabetic cats that have concurrent diseases like hyperthyroidism 
or hypoproteinemia, so that's low uh, systemic protein levels. They could have normal fructosamine levels um, due to a lower plasma protein and protein turnover rates. Okay, so it could be artificially normal. Okay, like we were talking about, in any case, you have to look at the individual benefits of running this test over other ones and understand what its limitations are. Now, fructosamine levels are not affected by stress. So fructosamine can be used as a screening test when we're not sure whether a cat is diabetic or whether it's exhibiting a persistent stress hyperglycemia. So that is one really good application of a fructosamine level. Mm -hmm. I like it. As far as home blood sugar monitoring, you know, there are a few ways. Blood sugar curve with a glucometer is my favorite. There are continuous monitoring systems available, and that, again, could be a whole episode on its own. So we're not going to really dig into that, but it may well be the future of diabetic monitoring. I think only time is going to tell, though. Some studies show promise in how effective they are. I've unfortunately seen some kitty cats on this method that have gone into DKA, though. And again, that's a small sample. It's just anecdotal. That is not scientific in any way. But whenever you as a practitioner have one patient do poorly with one treatment, it it kind of skews you. It starts to cloud, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, the brain tends to remember negative outcomes way more than it remembers positive ones, you know? Mm-hmm. And so yeah. since I've seen those handful of kitty cats, it just so happens that every cat I've seen on this system has presented to me on ER and DKA. So we have to say that that's not an accurate cross-sample of cats on this on this system. It just so happens that sometimes I work oh, emergency medicine. But how easy would it be if you could just slap one of those? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And just scan them? Mm-hmm. be so nice. Now, here's the thing, and, and what I don't know, this is complete speculation. In the cases that I've seen on those systems that... The only ones that I've seen happen to come into the ER for DKA. When I've questioned those owners more, it seemed like they were using the um, <laughs> they were using those continuous monitoring products to check more often than was appropriate, and it tempted the owners to make on the fly changes to the insulin. Okay, mm. does that make sense? So, like, yeah. In veterinary hands and in owner's hands who understand how much damage they can do if they're varying the insulin dose, it's probably a great system. But for that subset of owners that just can't stand it and they want to over-engineer their pet's care or however you want to call it, like we live in a town that's got a bunch of engineers, so... Mm -hmm. It tends to be engineers. I don't know for whatever reason, but they are like, it was this at this time and this at this time. So then I only gave one unit of insulin instead of five. And I'm like, you can't do that. You know, like, stop doing that. Yeah, you have to base it up for a longer period of time and not just tweak it real time like that. Yeah, it's not, you cannot use a sliding scale system like in people, but the sliding scale in people is what people are familiar with. And so Mm -hmm. they're like, I got this. You don't got it. Please do not, like, you don't have this. Please, please stop doing that. So in those cases, that seemed to be what was happening. Anyway, okay. So owner selection, very important. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hold out hope that things will, you know, progress that direction and tell engineers to chill. Yeah. So. Um, I'm married to one, so I can say that. The very, yeah. Tell your engineers to calm down. Urine glucose monitoring at home is something that I see advertised a lot on Facebook and television and stuff, and it's it's not that useful. Mm. It's not. I mean, it's not very useful. If you maybe had a cat you were worried about being diabetic and checked it at home, that's not an indication that you've diagnosed diabetes. That's an Mm. indication you need to schedule a consultation with your vet. Indeed. We're going to briefly review the complications of diabetes mellitus. So many aspects of uncomplicated feline diabetes could be their own episodes that we're going to have to come back to some of this. Yes. But the main things that we see as complications are things like diabetic ketoacidosis, which is a condition that occurs when the blood sugar runs too high for too long. You know, hypoglycemia or low blood sugar is dangerous or could be dangerous right away. It takes time for high blood sugar to be dangerous, but when it becomes dangerous, it gets real bad, okay? Mm -hmm. Shit gets real. Shit gets real. So pets with diabetic ketoacidosis have 
the hyperglycemia, elevated blood sugar, the glucosuria, sugar in the urine that we see with diabetic cats, but they also have ketone bodies in the urine and in substantial numbers. And it's the metabolization of fat for energy instead of glucose that creates these ketones. And we have such a shift in the utilization of energy that it creates a metabolic acidosis. This happens in known diabetic patients that aren't getting enough insulin, and it happens in new diabetic patients that haven't yet been diagnosed. When I was reading uh, about 40%, I want to say, for some reason I didn't write that as a note, but I believe the number was 40% of newly diagnosed diabetic cats come in with DKA. So it's like a, a pretty substantial number. Other factors that I've personally seen contribute to DKA. Cats that are that we're trying to get away with once daily insulin dosing. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, some cats, it might be possible, but gosh, most cats you have to have it twice mm-hmm. a day. Yeah. Owners that insist on manipulating insulin doses at home, like the example we Slide talked about earlier. Yeah, about like yeah. Can't, you don't dose cats on a sliding scale. You don't vary their insulin. Yeah, or just not following directions yeah. at all. Really, that kind of that bullet sort of sums up all of it. You know, you've got to follow your vet's directions. Yeah. My favorite is, you know, the whole, well, I mean, it wasn't doing great. And then we got on this insulin and, wow, he just started really feeling better. So I just kind of like played with like maybe I didn't give him his dose one morning or and he still seemed fine. And so I stopped it. Right. Now he's again. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and there in some cases might be a client education gap going on there. So we do need to make sure owners are aware that, you know, unless the cat achieves a remission, unless your vet tells you to stop the medicine or change it, don't stop it or change it. Yeah. Or if they just, you know, say they had a a, a family disaster or something that causes them to not be able to afford it, you know, talk to your veterinarian about it. Don't just yeah. stop it. And then, you know, two or three months down the road suddenly you find funds again and then you worry about it when the cat gets sick again it's yeah i mean so here's the thing buying buying even the most expensive bottle of insulin is way less expensive than diabetic ketoacidotic emergency there's several you know clients that will look up different insulins and like well why can't i use vetsulin Mm -hmm. which we have talked about and vetsulin is half the cost of prozinc yeah so that's a lot of times why they're like well why can't we do this it's labeled for cats and yeah. it's so much cheaper or why are you trying to give me the more expensive product because yeah. it's the product that works better for your cat right yeah i mean and i think in that situation you, you again it's just client education well this mm-hmm. is why i mean if you want to try it sure but is changing the type of insulin really going to save you money by the time we start a different type go through the adjustment process with multiple blood sugar cur- like it it's mm-hmm. not you know I know yeah. that owners want something that's very like they want to plug and play like what two units of this is the same as two. No, it's not. Yeah. So that just telling them that information um, is important. Some owners listen and some don't. And the the only thing that you can do is just calmly explain. For those cases, I like to utilize email. That way I can fully explain what's going on when I have time and it's not like a 45 minute phone consultation, you know, that they also don't want to pay for in the middle of the day while I've got people waiting in a lobby full, you know, mm-hmm. and it also um, allows them to like have chance to read it. And then lastly, it documents it in writing. And so I can just print that sucker and put it in the record. Right. Or mm-hmm. um, if you're, you know, if you're paper light or paper free, you can just like bloop, send it through your software. And so then that way it is a documented client communication. This is what I told you. So if they do things that you didn't tell them, luckily you, you documented that you said not to do it right <laughs> i told you so and i told you not so life shouldn't be about as a veterinarian limiting liability uh, but the reality is these days you gotta yeah you gotta make sure that you see why a so you can't set it and forget it with diabetics um diabetics have to have long-term monitoring 
So sometimes I feel like um, in the DKA cases I've seen, there have been cats that are lost to follow up. Maybe we've seen the cat three years ago, diagnosed it, got it on insulin, never saw the cat again. And the cat comes in in DKA and you're like, where have you been getting your insulin from? And there's just kind of like a vague, mumbling, not straightforward answer. And you're just like, okay, I don't know. I use some of Pawpaw's. Pawpaw's insulin. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, boy. Okay. (laughs) So there's no doubt that we're going to do a a DKA episode eventually. Um, Mm -hmm. So we're going to leave the pathophysiology and things like that for another time because just this is such a rich subject that it's just impossible to go over everything. 90% of the cats that present with diabetic ketoacidosis have concurrent diseases. So you need to look for them. And these include briefly hepatic lipidosis, renal disease, pancreatitis, neoplasia or cancer, cholangiohepatitis, which is liver inflammation, and bacterial infections. Uh, Urinary tract is one, but Mm, there could be others. Super common one. Mm -hmm. These cases require hospitalization and advanced care. If you've got a DKA patient, that patient needs to be hospitalized. Do not pussyfoot around with these patients. Don't try Mm -hmm. some half-assed outpatient therapy. No, no outpatient therapy. These guys have Mm -hmm. to be in the hospital. And you need to very closely assess your liability with regard to keeping this patient overnight if you're not staffed 24 hours uh, and you're planning to keep this patient, the owner needs to be informed and sign a consent form that they understand the patient will not be supervised overnight. If you have the ability to send the patient to like a local ER facility that is open overnight, that's the best way to go. Or even transfer to a 24-hour facility might be considered depending on the practice. Yes. Hypoglycemic episodes or low blood sugar episodes are the other type of diabetic emergency that we commonly will see. That just means the pet's getting more insulin than they currently need. We often see this if the pet has stopped eating and the owner continued to give the insulin. But if that cat's not eating, there's got to be some other problem that's creating that. So then we need to say, well, why is the cat not eating and work that up? The other thing is that the cat's going into remission. Yay. In troubleshooting these types of cases, we need to kind of look and say, is the owner giving the wrong dose? Are they maybe incorrectly administering the insulin? Was there an accidental overdose situation like one owner fed and medicated the cat and the other owner came back and medicated the cat thinking the first owner didn't? Mm -hmm. Did they use the wrong type of syringe? And things like that. If we're looking at kitty cats in general, and we mentioned this earlier, but again, if your cat is diabetic and is getting high doses of insulin, um, and for a cat, so say a typical 10-pound cat, what I consider a high dose of insulin is we're getting up into the six units. Mm, That's a major red flag. And honestly, I'd throw up a yellow flag if we're at three total units per cat. Yeah, I was thinking when I was like, most cats have you know, just one to two units. Exactly. I was basing some of my cost stuff on two units, and I was like, that's on the high end. Exactly. But, um, I think that that clinical observation is right on par with what I've seen. Most cats are well-regulated on one to two units twice a day um, of Glargine or uh, Prozinc. If we're having to use much higher doses, look for insulin resistance. Infection or inflammation are common causes acromegaly which will again we'll have to do a whole nother episode oh yeah cushing's (laughs) disease whole other episode okay (laughs) and then have you given that cat uh steroids accidentally somebody forgot it was diabetic and gave it a steroid shot uh i mean that seems like a no-brainer but i mean how Mm -hmm. many times have i seen that happen oh a lot (laughs) a lot so we will be doing some future episodes that take a deeper dive into some of this, okay? In the meantime, further reading regarding managing diabetic remission in cats. These include proceedings from two different talks by Dr. Jackie Rand, an internal medicine specialist. One is Feline Diabetes, Maximizing Diabetic Remission, and it's the proceedings from World uh, from the World Small Animal Veterinary Association Congress, and that was in 2017. And the other talk was feline diabetic remission, should it be the goal? And that's from the ACVIM forum in 2019. ACVIM stands for American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine. The 2018 AHA, that's American Animal Hospital Association, Diabetes Management Guidelines for Dogs and Cats. These are available free online to anyone. It's a downloadable PDF. You just go to their website. Those were compiled by Drs. Ellen Berend, Amy Holford, Patty Lathan, Renee Ruski, and Rhonda Schulman. 
so Dr. Barron was actually one of my veterinary school professors. So that's oh. that's exciting. Mm-hmm. Additional sources that I personally used when researching the information for this episode include the Vencyclopedia of Diseases Entry for Diabetes Mellitus in Cats. That was written by Dr. Carrie Rothrock in 2012. This is something that you do have to have Ven membership to access. That's Veterinary Information Network. The Feline Diabetes Mellitus Chapter of the Textbook of Veterinary Internal Medicine, written by Dr. Roosh in 2010. And day-to-day variability of blood glucose concentration curves generated at home in cats with diabetes mellitus from JAVMA, that's the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association, April 2007. And the authors on that were Nina Alt, Saskia Clay, Michael Hasing, and Claudia Roosh. Okay, so do you have sources too? Um, I did have one. Okay. It was, uh, this one was kind of a FAQ on uh, the remission. Yeah. Um, it's from the American Association of Feline Practitioners, the Diabetes Educational Toolkit. And also, I developed a document on blood glucose curve for clients, uh, sort of a flow sheet, so they oh, know what directions to follow um, before bringing their pets in and what to expect for the visit and that sort of thing. So oh, make that available. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Kind of like a template and uh, other people can mm-hmm. use it and change it as they need. Absolutely. That sounds awesome. So we'll post that when the episode comes out um, along with the show notes, uh, things like that on our social media, most likely. If you are a veterinarian, veterinary staff member, some type of veterinary professional, and you have cases or awesome stories for us, even if they're off the wall things, we'd love to hear them if you wouldn't mind sending them to to introvetspodcast at gmail.com and you might have your story read on air. It does need to be anonymous though. Mm -hmm. Protect the innocent. (laughs) Yes, protect the innocent. Thank you for listening to our episode about uncomplicated feline diabetes and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.